Greetings, future fossils. It may not be the winter of our discontent, but it is the autumn of our misinformation. And as I speak to you from my cave in Santa Fe, to borrow a term from my birthday twin, Stephen Hawking, a universe in a nutshell, I am delighted to fold in with you for a conversation with filmmaker Michael Morgenstern, whose project I Dared My Best Friend to Ruin My Life just wrapped as I am speaking this, its epic transmedia participatory entree to some of the most challenging questions that we face today. This conversation was a consummation of many of my long-running interests, and I suspect vectors that extend far past my own lifespan and out on long trajectories. So I implore you, check the show notes for the resources we gesture at in this discussion, because it turns out that this is bigger on the inside than it is outside. A rabbit hole, potentially a wormhole. And in every fractal branching tunnel, there gleams something wondrous. But first, I want to give a sincere and deep acknowledgement for everyone who has been floating Future Fossils on Patreon. You're helping feed three human beings, me, my wife, my toddler daughter, our cat, our three turtles, a fish, a clutch of turtle eggs and all the traces that we leave, including a new cyberdelic music project I was just involved in, translating ancient sculpture, the Loyanmensch, the Lion Man, an ancient figurine into an electronic pedalboard guitar adventure. It's what you're hearing now. Deep thanks to Chris D., and Jorge Pablo Frenetovich Stoker for joining us here in the cave we find ourselves burrowing through time with all the other Patreon supporters. Thank you for listening and enjoy. All right, then, Michael Morgenstern, it is a pleasure to have you on Future Fossils. I think our friend Ben Aldern suggested that we connect, and that was an extremely astute matchmaking because your work, and in particular your your newest project, speak to an issue that has mattered to me very deeply over the last few years. And regular listeners of this show will know that I dedicated episode 91 to a science fiction story called An Oral History of the End of Reality about what happens when we can counterfeit recorded media convincingly with artificial intelligence and, and what that will mean for us socially, politically, philosophically, psychologically. And so you're working on this thing that hopefully by now, maybe some of our, our listeners have already started to watch and participate in called Definitely Real. And it's, I think, probably the most exciting cultural manifestation of this particular philosophical investigation that I have yet to see. And I think in certain respects, the most competent and the most effectively encoded in, in uh, narrative and interactive media. So welcome on board. Can we start with just you talking a little bit about your your past as a media producer, filmmaker, writer, director, person, and then what like led you into this project in the first place? Yeah, sure. And and thanks so much, Michael. I'm really excited to be here, and I, I couldn't agree more. There's there's a lot of overlaps in the, in all of the things that you're thinking and contemplating, and what we've been exploring in our project. Um, yeah, so I started making films when I was 12. I always wanted to be a filmmaker, and a part of that was it was exciting, the idea of creating imagined realities and playing with what reality was and, and being able to dream something up and then have it come into existence. And then another part of it was seeing that the 
the world was headed towards a really weird, scary, dark place, and there was going to be uh, a role that media could play in uh, framing the stories and and in uh, pointing directions forward and, and helping us process and sense think about where we're at right now. Um, and so I've been involved in technology development and in social media, publicity, marketing endeavors, and starting little things and uh, using news cycles to to make things pop and to to create art. I started a thing called Name Tag Day that got everyone in New York wearing a name tag and started a, a double-sided grant when Trump created the Muslim ban. And since 2016 election, uh, when the news was rife with stories about Russian hackers controlling the narrative and taking things over, uh, a lot of these subjects have been really on my mind. And that was when I read the story, Dare My Best Friend to Ruin My Life. I just thought it was a cool story and it was really interesting and, and optioned it and decided that we could tell a story. It was on Reddit. It was a story that was supposed to feel like it was really happening where people could interact with it. thought, well, we could create something like this over the internet using video uh, that felt like it was really happening, but we could also do it in a way that's different than previous projects using a lot of the mechanisms that uh, disinformation and, and, and trolls and you know Russian and hackers and white nationalist hackers and that sort of thing use, but in order to tell art, in order to comment on those methods and make those more visible to people. So that's what we're doing. Yeah. You know, one of the things getting to watch an early cut of this film and feeling like a spy for getting to that opportunity, you know, the, just a taste of the kind of, uh, you know, cloak and dagger digital protection services and so on that you have to set up in this day and age to privately stream something you're working on, you know? Watching this, one of the things that was really impressed on me was how your appropriation of certain idioms, like the way that you are weaving the kind of like YouTube uh, selfie vlog into this, that the way that your your characters are soliciting engagement in the episodes themselves, you know, like they're in a, in a conversation with the audience as it's happening was, I think, a point of note above and beyond your treatment of deep fakes and, you know, cybersecurity and, and identity theft and all of, you know, the sort of unreliable narrator stuff that comes along with that, that there was like this really interesting thing where the medium is the message here. And the fact that you are allowing this project to spill out of its merely cinematic identity and into like all of this other stuff really felt like it was speaking to this is it or isn't it kind of a thing that you're treating mm -hmm. in the in the narrative itself like i was i was watching this and i'm like are people supposed to believe that this is actually happening or <laughs> not you know like i i think most people are like smart enough to be like well there's no way that you could have filmed this whole story unfolding like this and it also be like actually happening right now but it, right. it's like you're you're really like messing with people's heads in this regard and i i, and I would say that. yet you know, and, and give it 10 years and you absolutely will be able to create something like this on the fly. Yeah. And yeah. and I think that's part of what our, mes our message too is, is that our ability to spin and weave these stories. First, there was Photoshop and now there's GPT-3. But when is it going to be that we can just tell a computer what story to tell and it creates this cinematic happening? And then we start, you know, having computers recreate our memories, but the way we want to remember them, like that we, we really, I think now are just in the beginning of the post-truth era. And maybe, I mean, we've always been in the post-truth era, but it's, 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 it's hit another level. Well, there's that line, Ian Malcolm's line in The Lost World, Jurassic Park, where he goes, oh, ooh and ah, that's how it always starts. And then there's running and screaming, you know, and I think, I think about that when it comes to <laughs> this particular genie being out of the bottle or this particular yeah. dinosaur having escaped the park. That, you know, when I was writing a, about this stuff a couple of years ago, I was thinking about it mostly in terms of the Adobe demo that had been done showing that you can train a machine learning algorithm to learn someone's vo voice clone them in like, right. you know, just a few, like 20 seconds. And now it's down to five seconds or less. And I was thinking about it mostly in terms of like celebrity imitation game stuff and how now, like, have you played with Reface, yeah. that app? 
Yeah. So yeah. like, I know you and I both know Micah Daigle and he's been posting this hilarious <laughs> stuff where it's like his bearded face on Britney Spears' body and all this stuff. But he just uses like... his own face as, as a reaction to things now. He'll just do reaction gifts with his himself. Yeah. So it's like the question of at what point does it stop being fun and do does somebody lose an eye? I think is a really interesting question. I'd love to hear you speak on. You know, like it's this is like any other technology. This is not something that's purely disastrous. Like there's it's it's also fun and interesting, and it opens yeah. up new creative possibilities in a positive way. Well, it's it's hard to you know it's it's a slippery topic to even talk about because there's there's deep fakes. You know, there's disinformation in general. There's tribalism. There's social media filter bubbles. And these things are all, you know, I think the thing that they all have in common is it's artificial intelligence getting better and better at being able to manipulate uh, our reality and what we think, but also to like target us really directly. And yeah, I mean, I see the biggest issue as the identities that we build around ourselves and the way that we build building identity around ourselves forever since we, we started as a species, but that now that is hackable because artificial intelligence has put us into these different groups, has figured out how to hack that. And the science of hacking people is just getting better and better and better. And not just with computers, it's, you know, advertising has just been iterating on new techniques. And you really see like when, um, when Upworthy started, clickbait was not a thing. Like the, the clickbait headline that Upworthy, oh. Upworthy, and they like invented something. And it was really like a piece of technology that once it was invented, could be used and like previously didn't really exist. Um, and so we're going to see more and more of that. And yeah, but I think that these, these things like deep fakes really just hack our tribal identities using this like information system that we're in. And that's what makes, yeah, it's a systemic thing. Mm. You know, it's interesting. You bring up the upworthy thing because that's absolutely a ball that rolled uphill to the New York times, like the way that now elite journalism is harvesting attention that, yeah. you know it's it's an interesting note on the way that like innovation happens sometimes in the margins or like in the lowbrow and then it gets absorbed up and normalized in this way that like so, you know that it that sort of uh you know suggests to me a trend in which you know you and i find the future just unbelievably crass uh but you know at any rate that we're already like i'm already yeah. thinking about being an old man like not being able to hack it <laughs> but, yeah. So, you know, and, and your, uh, your, your movie does a really good job of making me feel that way, just, you know, in terms of uh, being somebody that was, you know, using desktops in grade school, but didn't really get into like instant messaging until high school. And I worry that in a way that I'm not sure my parents worry about being unable to compete with this kind of evolutionary arms race that you're talking about that there is this thing about uh, rising to the level of your incompetence and then getting usurped by some like precocious young buck. And I think like in a way, every generation is going to just slap the generation before it with that kind of thing faster yeah. these days is, you know, is how it feels right now. And like just the amount of techno technological know-how that the young characters of your story are uh, demonstrating is in many ways, very hopeful. You know, and, and in, in many ways also contributes to this understanding of like, I don't know, there was something very, I don't know if you really want to go here into too much depth or detail, but there was something very fight club when you're talking about the tribalism and the identity piece of it that yeah. uh, I found something very deeply, like you were translating some core ideas of fight club in a way I found really, uh, you know, appropriate for our time. And one of which included the you know fight club for smartphone world and right. like one of those things included the way that your two your protagonist to antagonist your you know your two lead characters uh end up marshalling these nerd armies behind them online the way that like 4chan and 8chan like you know that we we've taken on this sort of distributed uncredentialed vigilantism online right. that's really scary and like you don't know what you're doing with project mayhem like project mayhem has its own agency you like you're right. participating in something that's bigger than you as the celebrity face of it you know and so at, like at what point does that turn on you is a really interesting question you know like how can can we really trust these these uh you know unmonitored self-policing it's kind of also like a watchman question right like when we all become technological superheroes who's watching us Who's, yeah. who's making sure that we're not just screwing each other over? 
Well, there's there's a there's a lot of Project Mayhem and Team Takedown for sure, and I think one of the biggest through lines is that it's it's not so much about a particular ethos; it's about a rage, you know. It's about this this uh, under underbelly of of emotion and frustration that people feel, you know, and, and wanting to act that out. Um, and there's something really really primal about that that I see happening in the world around us right now. One of those examples, I think, you know, I'd, I'd like to hear you speak to so that it gets us back onto the implication of this stuff for the, the world stage. Of course, you know, that there's there's a strong rhyme in your story with the kind of sort of dark revolutionary attitude that is openly espoused by people like Donald Trump and Steve Bannon, who have pointed to a particular book, The Fourth Turning, as the anchor point for their political philosophies and like their what they believe is their role in history. And this book talks about our society, Western society in, in the United States, being on the cusp of this sort of metamorphic collapse. And like when you even hear the New Agers talking about how we're all the imaginal cells of a you know, a caterpillar that's going through its metamorphosis into a butterfly. It's like, well, that's all well and good, except like we live in a world where certain people imagine themselves to be at the helm of that transition. And it's mm -hmm. like, oh, you're actually guiding this, this historical process, are you? Or like, you're the Luke Skywalker that we're going to put into that particular chief seat, right? you know? So, I mean, when I compare this kind of thing to shamanic warfare, it's like we this very much feels like what we're talking about now, mm -hmm. where you know uh, ayahuasqueros are shooting psychic darts at one another in the Amazon all night. Yeah, you know, and that like that's really what like media warfare is. Well, I think that's a that's a great point too. That it's there's a huge leap between saying that person needs to be taken down or something needs to be done about this to saying uh, I am the person to take that person down, and also everything else that I say is correct. <laughs> That, that mm. we see that we see people taking that leap uh, really, really quickly, and it goes from moralism to vigilantism really fast. I think that we've just accepted that. You know, we, we've seen, I think, over the, the past year, especially the idea of vigilante justice much more uh, acceptable in the United States. You know, somebody killing someone because they deserved it on the street is not how this country at least espouses its own beliefs. And it's become the way the way we operate in some ways. Just now, you talking about this really kind of reminds me of Deadwood, uh -huh. <laughs> the Wild West, generally, you know, just the, the idea that when technology outstrips regulation, then even if we don't have a geographic frontier in the way that we used to, we do have a techno-cultural and like socioeconomic frontier and philosophical mm -hmm. frontier that for which we're unprepared. And I remember a few years ago, Edward Snowden and John Perry Barlow had a really great conversation about this and like the problems of bringing a sort of frontier attitude into the future of this country. Yeah, I don't know what your thoughts are on all of that. Oh, gosh. Which part of it? Where are we standing? What do you see when you look out onto this frontier? What are your, your hopes and your concerns and I don't know, in some sense, maybe we're jumping the gun. We're only 17 minutes in here. But like, <laughs> what do you expect us to be able to do about this? I know we, we went like we went deep fast. Well, I, I mean, I see that, that that people have hardened, you know, and I see that, that our tribal identities have hardened to such a degree that we don't relate to a shared tribal identity. You know, some idea that we are American, we're going to get through this together or some idea, uh, you know, that there's a lot of like the us versus them is just so stark and so black and white right now. And it makes it really hard to imagine futures of, of cooperation. I don't really have answers. I, I mean, I think that it's so important to just um, have that conversation about it. Uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's so difficult because like in, in this country, we see, you know, I think the, the, like where we stand now with the legacy of slavery, there's some real, shit that we need to address and so uh you know it's it's not that everyone needs to get along uh it, but there's there's a there's a way in which discourse happens especially online that just shuts down the possibility of discussion or shuts down the possibility of anything but warfare and and i think we need to figure out a different way to communicate about about critical issues if we really want to see progress on them so I, i'm an advocate for just talking directly to people and i think 
you know, I think the more we can be having direct conversations face to face or on the phone or over Zoom calls instead of anonymously over a screen. I also believe there's millions and millions and millions of dollars has been poured into technology designed to harvest our attention and get us clicking and get us outraged. Millions and hundreds of millions of dollars has been devoted towards getting us to believe certain things about the system, getting us to vote for certain people. And almost nothing has been spent with the intention of creating greater empathy and greater conversation. And like my dream would be to see like hundreds of millions of dollars poured into projects just designed to increase connection and vulnerability and empathy. Uh, you know, that, that when, when you're really serious about something like this, and when, when we're in the face of such major obstacles, you know, what, what political operatives do is they pour a ton of money into it and they hire the best people and they try a whole bunch of experiments and they learn what works and they keep iterating. You know, so I think if we as a society are really serious about creating a, a better future, that's that's one way forward because it does take resources and attention and time. Just like just it, it's taken a lot of resources to fuck the world over. <laughs> we have to put a lot of resources towards unfucking it. You know, it's interesting to think about what that might actually look like in practice, because the thrust that I keep sensing in that whole conversation is about disintermediation. You know, like I was just speaking to Burning Man's resident philosopher, Caveat Magister, on the sh uh, for this show and talking about Burning Man VR. And like, you know, he, he's, he's been very sympathetic and impressed by all the volunteer work that's gone into it, but also, you know, critical of the unquestioned enthusiasm for being able to duplicate Burning Man convincingly in an environment where we don't really understand the technological affordances, we're not embodied in the same way. He pointed out that we don't have, we don't know how to give a gift in virtual reality yet, and like that's so central to Burning Man. Like, how do you, you know, how how do you like make eye contact? At least people are thinking about that, asking that question, and we're not prepared yet. I think in certain ways to have our humanity online in ways that it needs to happen in order to maintain the fabric of our communities. And that's a no-brainer to anybody who's been living through this pandemic, I think. It's pretty obvious. But, you know, that's that's I think we it's important to differentiate between what is once and for all and forever impossible and then what will become possible, but then continue to open up sort of dangerous new counter possibilities also. And so like yeah. when I think about all of that stuff, about like what it's going to take for us to have the kind of intimacy and trust relationships that we have online, I think that's also going to open up its own sort of black box of, of horrors. And so it gets us to this, this thing about how do we unplug and, you know, when do we unplug and what does that look like? Not for, you know, some abstract sense of it being, you know, uh, your mental health, but a concrete sense of the importance of being able to trust what you are hearing and seeing in this world. Because like that's, you know, when Regina Rini, I think at York University, wrote this essay about deep fakes in the epistemic backstop, and she was talking about, we had this brief beautiful window in history where we could trust photographs and we could, you know, trust audio recordings. And it was, you know, even though photo manipulation and audio manipulation have been around forever, uh, you know, as long as the media themselves, it was never convincing in the way that it's convincing now. And so we're at a point now where it's, you know, is it's going to be an arms race of counterfeiters and forensics specialists. And ultimately that, you know, what is lost in that process is our ability to trust certain things in a court of law or in the court of public opinion. And ultimately, her concern was something I think you've already pointed to, which is that it makes politics kind of unscalable suddenly because you're having to participate in political issues about things for which you cannot possibly be there in person. And so, like, it really feels as though, the, the, to me, the outcome of this, the actual healthy adaptation to this new media environment is one in which governance is largely redistributed and restored to, like, local, regional, and, you know, like, neighborhood-level stuff, and that it's going to get really, really hard for things to cohere at any level greater than that 
until we figure out how to trust our video recordings again. Right. Yeah, I, I think that, yeah, those are all great points. That was a hell of a rant. Sorry. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I'm with you 100%. And, you know, that's a thing that our project explores very heavily, both in an intellectual but on an artistic sense, like that feeling of not knowing what to trust and not knowing what's real. And like just the uncertainty of existing in a world where reality is slip sliding under your feet, um, both from the way that we're releasing content online so that it's blurring the distinction between you, the audience's role and what you're watching, but to the, the main character, Xander, like his, his journey. Um, I think the question, yeah, will we be able to trust things? You know, and, and the, the most dangerous end state there is this throwing up our hands and saying, well, we can't trust anything. Uh, so I'm just not going to believe anything that I hear, and I'm just going to believe what I choose to believe because there are things that are more true than others, or at least there are things that are falsifiable, um, and some things are lies. Um, you know, I, I think a, a, a more interesting question, or an interesting question to me is, is not just can we tell what's real, but can we unsee video? And that's a big question that I don't think we have the answer to yet. We're incredibly adaptable creatures, and so I think that we probably will find a way around it, but we really just don't know. So, like, there's a thought experiment that I like to run through. Imagine that you are in a relationship, and you get a FaceTime, and you pick up the FaceTime, and it's your partner of four years, and they are clearly upset, and they go on a rant about all the things they're upset with about you, and these things they say hit you to your core in a way that almost nothing anyone says, has said hits you. They just prey on your deepest insecurities. And then these things that you sort of thought your partner might have thought, and you kind of thought everyone thought, and you realize that this is what your parents have been warning you about. And, and then they hang up, and you start to realize that all the things you worried about regarding your partner were true, You know that these little doubts and uncertainties you had about them, like they were displaying exactly that, and they won't pick up the phone. And you talk to a few friends, and you realize this whole thing was a mistake. And then the next day, they call you, and they say that their SIM card was hacked, and it was an AI deepfake. And the question is, can you unsee that video? Can you, can you unexperience those feelings? Can you unbreak that relationship? And I think that I have an answer for that now that is actually, I think, quite exciting. But Please. Yeah. Well, it, it's, I mean, it's a very scary proposition. And then thinking about, well, it might be possible, likely will be possible to deploy an attack like that on thousands of people if you wanted to. You know, to be analyzing everybody's speech patterns and, and doing this like a botnet um, and just getting everyone to get broken up with by their partner on the same day. And it's just like a, a bomb you drop on a country or something. Um, but if we do live in a reality... That would take a study to its knees, at least for a few days, for yeah. sure. <laughs> oh my God, it's heartbreak. <laughs> it's, yeah. But if this kind of attack became so commonplace, if artificial intelligence was really able to prey on our deepest weaknesses there would only be one adaptation we could make, and that would be to have all the elephants in the room out of the open. And our deepest vulnerabilities and insecurities and somebody saying you're fat or your like, nose is crooked or something like that would be things we talk about and joke about because they, that's the only way to make them not be our insecurity, our, our vulnerabilities. And that's actually kind of cool. You know, and, and if the idea that we could get so non-reactive, we would have to, for survival, get so non-reactive that our partner would call us screaming and we'd, we'd first say, Okay, what's the safety code of the day? You know, <laughs> tell me your mother's maiden name. Like, like just a very calmly anti-bot detections. Yeah. So I, th I think in some level that is going to come to pass, that our, our elephants will have to come out of the room because they're, they're major vulnerabilities for us right now. Oh, dude, first of all, let me just speak to how much love I have for the way that you and all of our sort of mutual friends in the San Francisco Bay Area treat this kind of a question you know the way that that this like young cohort of brilliant folks in the bay is moving past the technological solutionism and into the sort of you know i've spent countless hours working on my feelings in like group housing situations <laughs> kind of <laughs> attitude you know like there's something about my san francisco friends that uh, i really you know, gives me a lot of hope that we're not going to just try and engineer our way out of this situation, that like the answer really is to go deeper into our humanity and anchor ourselves there. And, you know, so to that point, I, I really, 
I remember I I discussed Jeff Vandermeer's Born that novel. I don't know. Have you read that? No. Oh my God. It's such an extraordinary piece of work. I think it's being adapted by Amazon or something right now, which would be really exciting. It's a, it's a bizarre work of sort of fantastical science fiction about a post-apocalyptic city in which your characters are scavengers and there are like genetic monsters running loose in the city. And, um, the, the, one of the protagonists is this bizarre shape-shifting, possibly a weapon of a creature that the one of the characters finds while salvaging in the city. And it's like intelligent and communicative and full of surprises and increasingly ominous and comes in between the lovers that are like the hub of this story is like, you want an emotional relationship with this thing. And yet that's like terrifying. And it's clearly, is it manipulating you or is it sort of naive in the way that, you know, a paperclip machine is naive and is like not actually trying to hurt anyone. And so, you know, there's this point in the story where without spoiling it for you or for listeners, trust between these characters is is deeply violated. And so the, the two characters, the boyfriend, girlfriend, they start issuing passcodes to each other, you know, like public keys so that they know that they're not actually talking to this other thing that they're actually talking to the person that they've had a relationship with and not something pretending to be that. And it's so, I, I mean, to me, that was that book, which the recording of with that call we have in the book club on Patreon, I think I'll probably freeware all of those conversations here soon. If listeners are interested, that conversation really ended up being about like this being a parable of our communications technologies, that there is this, question of what do we want to get in between us you know like when i had arthur brock the the lead designer of the holochain project you know cryptocurrency and and like currency design and all that when i had him on the show he was talking about how we have gotten so used to all of our communications being over what he calls an enclosed carrier you know like you don't think about the fact that the city owns the pipes that run to your house Mm-hmm. that kind of thing you know and so like there's this question of again of like what it means to break something apart but in the same process to recenter into personal agency personal authority you know the trust between people that we establish for ourselves and is not sort of guaranteed by a hackable third party i love the the classic example of like the prosthetic limb that tries to sell you coca-cola is like always trying to reach for the bottle of Coca-Cola. Mindful Cyborgs <laughs> podcast talked about that years ago. Uh, Clint Finley was like, terrible. "Yeah, you got to watch out for the prosthetic limb that's like always reaching for the Coke instead of the Pepsi." You know. Wow. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so it's like I don't know where we are with this. Like we're just in some sort of uh, huggable dystopia. Uh, but yeah, that, that's and that's something that yeah, the social media platforms, but all of the technology, it it takes a part of our normal interactions and it replaces us with a facsimile of that 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 is con- partially controlled by someone else and that that affects our behavior and so it's yeah our, i mean our, our ability to communicate even just now is so much more limited than it would be if we were in person you know with body language and you know i think about the angel practice of hanging out and doing nothing together you know just being in each other's physical presence and like you don't really do that online you, know, you could play a video game together, but it's not really the same. That's just, a very yeah. interesting point. I mean, there's so much about being human that I think is, is such a mystery and are so ineffable and not encoded in language and not encoded in these stories we tell about what it means to be human that, that I think we lose the more we go into the digital world. So right before the pandemic closed our campus at the Santa Fe Institute, we were just moving into a, a second campus, moving like a half of the folks into uh, this uh, spot about 10 minutes away from the first spot. And it was like this kind of trauma, right? Like breaking up the party into two different buildings. And we were trying to resolve how we can actually preserve the serendipity of all being in the same building and just being able to run into one another. And the answer that our director of technology was interested in exploring as a fellow Star Trek fan was the idea of a door-sized always-on video call connecting the two buildings where you just like walk up to this magic mirror and you're just you can just hang out 
you know, like quote unquote next to somebody. And it's like funny that that was like the direction that we were headed right before the pandemic obviated the entire thing and just sent us all home, you know, but like, there's like something, I don't know, there's something about like, we are clearly through that looking glass this year. And one of the questions, uh, you know, while we're talking about Red Queen arms races and so on, you know, one of the questions that comes out of being in Wonderland is this question of time and, and memory and like, which way is which, you know, what is the past and what is the future? And I'm, I'm so this is this is just a very elaborate way of me getting around to asking you what you think is likely to change, like how it's going to feel to understand time, past, present, future, those the relationship between those things and memory and and like forecasting and prediction in a world that is populated and defined by and defined by the kind of technologies that we're talking about in this call, like other than just simply, you know, like the schizoid uh, liminality and like wondering if, you know, beyond just like losing, you know, being like, I am Jack's liver, like forgetting mm-hmm. who you, who else you are, Tyler Durden style. Uh, what else can we expect from this world in the, in that regard? I don't know. I mean, that's such a, that's such a crazy question. I mean, I, I don't, I don't even know how to think about, you know, where, where we're going to, where we, what it's going to be like on the other side. <laughs> yeah. But I, I mean, you know, I just, I just have little, little things to add, but yeah, I think moving away from the groundedness of like mutually established frameworks, it, it's going to be, I think the world is just going to continue to feel more and more like a dream state. You know, and, and I think it already does, and it already does feel like, and I, I actually, it was a, a week ago, a week and a half ago, I was working very hard, working like crazy 19-hour days, uh, trying to lock picture for the movie, and I had to go to a hotel room because the internet went down where I was, and so I'm sitting in a hotel room, and it's like four in the morning, and I'm working on editing this thing, and I just have a moment where I'm like, wait okay, the world has been taken over by a global pandemic. Everyone is interacting over the internet. I'm about to release a movie over the internet about disinformation, using the tools of disinformation. Like, I think that I really, truly owe it to myself to really decide, like, figure, try to figure out if I'm dreaming right now. <laughs> like, this is one of those moments <laughs> that you talk about where you're like, if that ever happened, I would definitely check. You know, and I was like, nothing about this seems like a, a natural course of events or progression. Like, this is absurd. <laughs> Dude, you know, that to, to that point earlier when you were talking about your your sort of uh, thought experiment about the breakup call, I, I was thinking about how this is already something that we navigate to some degree for, you know, anyone who has raised your hands if you've woken up from a dream where you had a fight with your partner. And you're like, had a hard time shaking the, like, you're like angry at them in the morning the next day, you know, like there's a residue of something that, you know, didn't happen, you know, like on some level, but like, of course, like, you know, a lunatic like myself does sort of wonder about dreams and, and their ontological status, because I have without question shared dreams with some of my friends where like, I didn't talk to somebody for like a year and then had a, my friend appear in my dream wearing a particular dress. And then I called her up the next day and confirmed the location as like something that was also happening in her dream the night before. And the dress that she was wearing, she like found a photo of something similar online and sent it to me. And so it was just like, I wonder in that case, uh, was that a time loop? Right. You know, was our was like information from the future coming back, like refluxing into our individual experiences in I a way so that, like, mean, there think... was no quantum entanglement. Actually, it's it's like just time is nonlinear, you know, anyway. So that's like that's where my head goes when I think about this stuff. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're saying that where, where my head goes immediately is like, oh, my God, I'm just thinking of all the um, conspirituality people who are going to hear this and start getting in, you know, that there, there's um. There's so much, uh, I think, as as more and more things seem possible, as the world seems weirder and weirder, it's easier and easier to believe 
different things and then to start taking action on them or to start having those be our worldview. And I'm not saying that it wasn't for sure, but I, I think that at least my, my, my perspective on this is, uh, and, and there's been, I've had a lot of experiences that are sort of outside of the normal range of experience or like, you, you know, and, and I, it's to, uh, to have a certain agnosticism about the whole thing, mm. you know, that, that like there's, that I'm very willing to believe that any state of the world is true, but I'm not very, I, I try not to like act on it in the sense that, or like, that, or, or that's not really the right way to put it. I just think there is a very real, you, you know, there's a very real danger that happens if we lose touch with reality. I'm putting that in air quotes. You can't hear that on the podcast, yeah. but, but that, that, uh, that as we are each have more and more ability to believe our own stories about just basic things about how the world functions, there's ways in which, for example, there's ways in which now or in a world that feels like a dream state, it's much easier to say I'm the Christ, uh, you know, or it's much easier to say, you know, and, and, and these things with QAnon where, you know, uh, think ideas become prophecies, become armies really fast. It's just making me wonder you know, the, the old order was so much more stable, where there was a very powerful centralized authority that was like, this is reality and everyone has to listen to us. And if you uh, disagree, you're fucking weird. And and that is disappearing. And, it, you know, it, was, it, it wasn't great, but it was also a centralizing grounding force. Is any of this making sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had... Um... I, I in episode one thirty nine, I believe, I, I went on a rant about the coronavirus and what I saw the trajectory being as society, you know, splinters up either just in a sort of uh, reversible kind of an innocent way, you know, just through sheltering in place, or you know, through like long term consequences, you know, literally falls apart into you know, smaller units of governance, like we mentioned earlier. And one of the things that if you look at what's going on structurally, I mentioned in, in that episode that Jamie Stantonian, who's a, a British writer, really interesting person I engage with a lot in the groups I'm a part of on Facebook. And Jamie has written this piece on the Gutenberg Press and the early modern information explosion, which you can uh -huh. find on Medium, and I'll, I'll link to in the show notes, where he's talking about how everything that we're talking about today happened when people could start printing pamphlets. That like social media is just the like crack version of totally. you know this this earlier thing that completely shook Europe, and like the the the, the character of the time was very similar. That you know that that it was people arguing about what positions the planets were in the sky and like what shape the Earth was in like what amounted to you know hammer press printed flame war that it was it was like one person's pamphlets against another person's pamphlets and for me there's like a little hope in that situation in that this is not as apocalyptic as we feel like it is or it, that it's precisely as apocalyptic as it was for the people living through that a few hundred years ago you know yeah yeah we uh, there there's i think a lot of people in this era who will say there's been doomsdayers forever and every new invention that comes out people say this is the end of civil discourse and the end of civilization uh, you know, and then there's the counterpoint and I, I'm more in the counterpoint era of like this time it's different, you know, this time it's, it's like, it really is climate change that threatens our species. This time it really is like once the artificial intelligence hits the level of intelligence of humans, it's, it's not, there's a game over quality to that, or there's a, you know, there's a, a fundamental shift that's about to happen. That, yeah, so, be, I don't know. Is that where, where do you stand between those two? Yeah, I, I think I do. Like, I, I, I want to, you know, in answering that, I want to loop back to, you know, what you said a moment ago about, you know, trying not to take ourselves too seriously when we don't have validation for our experience outside of ourselves or like outside of our tribes, you know, that there is, let's get this right. Like, uh, I have this fabulous book that I read in college called On Becoming Aware. It was co-authored by the complexity scientist, Francisco Varela, who, you know, did a, a beautiful piece of work in, I think, 1973 called The Calculus of 
self-reference, which was about how you talk about systems in a way that includes the person describing the system and like formalized it mathematically. And it's still a really sort of uh, visionary and, and kind of contentious piece from what, what I understand. But like, so there's this notion in the book that like nothing is actually unreal, that like your experience is the bedrock of like ontology. And yet it becomes more real, the more you are able to validate it through correlation with other perspectives. So there's like a gradient where like you can't attack somebody's, the intrinsic reality of somebody's hallucination, but you can be like, but we don't share that reality. So like, that's not going to interface. Oh, so science is just like the third person thing is like where the third guy comes in, gloop, and then like presumably you just keep going. And like the more robust something is, the more perspectives, even like non-human perspectives are going to agree with you. And so like that, to see it that way, I think allows for the the dignity of personal experience in a way that allows people to have your cake and eat it too. But it allows us also a ladder out of which to climb this like muck of confusion in which your personal experience and objective reality are somehow the same thing, you know? Yeah. And I think that we are seeing tremendous shifts in all these processes you're talking about. And that is, it's both scary and it's going to be a fascinating time to be alive because we really are as a species undergoing this shared hallucination where we we have these words that we use and these just understandings of the world around us. And, you know, a long time ago, there were gods in the sky and they were speaking to us. And now there's stars in the sky and there's a Milky Way galaxy. And it's not that those things aren't real, but but that the, this this framework is built collectively, and uh, that that thing you're saying about well, it becomes more real when the people around you validate it is crazy because that's what's being fucked with right now. We now have the ability on the internet for a, a group of millions of people to rise up overnight who all have the same shared new belief systems. Uh, we also have the ability to make it seem like that's happening. And to sort of hack those processes by which we're double checking our sanity, uh, you know, and, and you see that with like, uh, you know, QAnon, for example, how quickly people can go totally off the deep end to really believing there's a giant group of pedophiles and that aliens have landed and that, you know, and that um, once we start reinforcing all that stuff, I think it's remarkable how, what you can get someone to believe. And maybe it's maybe those new hallucinations are no worse than the old hallucinations. You know that, that there was a lot of crazy shit we believe right now that we just don't question because everyone around us believes it. Or maybe not. You know, it's funny in, in that in saying that I think I want to fall back on integral meta theory here. You know, so that you put the empirical world and like claims validity claims about that in one corner. You put the world of shared meaning in one corner, you put the world of personal experience in one corner, and then you put the world of like functional relationships between things in another. And when you do that, your answer seems to suggest that basically like when we lose the ability to understand whether or not something is empirically valid, then what we're left with is our individual experiences of it, our collective experiences of it, and our observation of the ways that it relates functionally to the, the rest of our systems. It's like, by their fruits, shall ye know them? And I've been thinking about this a lot with respect to the news items about whether the West Coast fires have been arsons, you know, and like there seems to be evidence that there is. I'm, I don't feel qualified to take the time to verify that evidence myself. And so it puts me in this question of like, well, what are the effects of this news on the body politic and like the conversation that's happening. And, and like, it seems like this particular news seems to just be continuing to drive a wedge of, of polarization between these two reality tunnels on the, the left and right, you know, that it's like, ultimately it's just whether or not it's true. It does seem like uttering this particular spell on electronic media is a spell of like division you know, whether or not it's meant to be is another question. But I feel like that's the way that we got to navigate. 
it's just more evidence you can rack up to believe what you want to believe, but it's not actionable. It's not, it's so hard because yeah, on, on one hand, there's this, I think, inevitable conclusions that springs from all this that we, we have to accept that we're not going to know what's real. We have to accept that all of this and we have to think about, well, how can I operate as the best, most giving, most generous person? And how can I, you know, but, and then I think what that totally sidesteps is that it's really, it's important to know, for example, like it's very important to know, is Trump like keeping immigrant children in cages and should we do something about it? You know, and it's also, I think, important to know, is that a new thing that Trump is doing or is that something that has been done before that and, and because we're like a, a societal political animal as a human species, we like, we have to be able to engage on that level. So, so it's, I, I but I think that, that that can be separated too of, of there's the, in our personal lives, in our interactions with other people, it really should be about, well, what, what do I know? What have I experienced? What, you know, rather than all these people are saying this stuff about all these people. And so you're wrong about this and let's scream at each other for a little while. Yeah. The issue of, whom to trust when you can't be there in person gets really interesting. Like, I feel like when you look at, this has been widely discussed, you know, the way that representative democracy emerged out of trying to govern a geographic area that was connected by horse carried letters. There were latencies in that system of like a few days in in either direction. And so it grew to a particular size and there are ways that forced the use of generalist representatives, you know, people that would actually speak on all issues, you know, this, the scale of society was, was such that you didn't have the option of like senators of science and senators of, you know, resource management and centers of public infrastructure, you know, speaking to all of these like specific issues that now require enormous expertise that wasn't necessary 300 years ago or 200 years ago. Again, it just sort of this question of like how many additional layers of participation in the body politic are necessary? How close do we have to get to the action? And like how many degrees of separation away from it must we remain in order for things to cohere at scale? I think is a really interesting question. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So like, let me, let me, let me throw you like a relatively easy one, which is, you know, I would, I I would love to hear more about what you're doing around this project, you know, and the other, the way that you're weaving other media into it and, and uh, you know, other uh, creators and yeah, you know, talk about your team and like all the cool stuff you're doing around this film, please. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so, it's so cool. And in some ways it's, it's been almost like creating a company as performance art that, that it's, it's sort of absurd the way that the, just the, the the scale of what we've created and the, the number of incredible people who uh, we're working with to make this project happen. Uh, you know, we have a large team of people who are immersive theater artists uh, led by Zach Fish, who produces like large scale immersive theater events. And that team is doing our narrative integration. And so we have a game that people can play where you can go explore different stories about the characters uh, we also have integration with a whole bunch of independent creator projects. And so we put a grant program out there for people to tell stories uh, in combination with our story. Um, and we provide the beat map. We provide some instructions about at each point in the story, this is what you'd be doing. And it's up to people's individual creativity to create their own project. So what's really cool about this is we get a lot of different perspectives. We set what the themes are, what the major beats are, and then having all these different projects online makes this feel a lot more like a real news event, gives you a lot more interactive content, but it also gives creators an opportunity to make their own stuff that we can then expose to the world and try to make successful. And the the more successful that is, the more we can do with it later and turn it into its own separate project or help that grow. And so we become like an incubator for different stories. And also, you know, you know, here's the way a lot of disinformation works too, is, is creating a lot of different pieces of something uh, that, you know, that makes it feel more organic, that gives it more exposure. Uh, each piece is tailored to a specific group. But I'm really excited to go from the idea of like a singular film with a singular story and a singular hero's journey to a bigger story with a collective of we. Um, so we have this fantastic narrative team. We have a really incredible marketing team uh, led by our CMO, Franz Aliquo, and our chief digital strategist, Joe Federer. Joe, 
did partnerships at Reddit. He started their partnerships division. Franz has done a whole bunch of wild projects that have gotten a lot of press attention. And they have built a marketing strategy, which is really also a story. You know, that I started with this core story of the, between Xander and David and handed it to Franz, who then built the broader story that gets us into that core story. You know, and, and to us, marketing is storytelling. That The first time you hear about a project, the way you hear about it and what it tells you about what you're about to experience is really that, you know, in some ways, the most important piece of something storytelling. So we have we have a great publicist. Uh, his name's Evan White. He's the, the guy... Um, his, the one he think he's done that I'm the most biggest fan of is when the guy traded his paperclip for a house. Oh, Remember yeah. That? yeah. 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 So he was this publicist. Um, so oh, he, wow. right on. Yeah. So we brought him on recently and he's been getting really excited about all the different ways that we're going to, you know, have the characters talk in, in, in character on podcasts and that sort of thing. And, you know, we have kind of an extended community of people who are our friends who are interactive artists and, so that's, I think, a, a cool thing. And depending on when this podcast gets released, like you too, the listener, can be part of this story. Like there's a lot of ways that you can play a role just by creating a character, just by interacting with these characters, uh, or just by watching it and talking to your friends about it. That, that if, you're, if you're watching the videos, you're already in the story. So, you know, you, you just brought up a moment ago that you're kind of using a methodology or teamwork architecture that is the architecture of disinformation. And, you know, this is something that I think, you know, my interest in this whole conversation that we've had today in certain ways started in 2013 when I was invited by Chris Pezza, who's another one of our, our mutuals, to uh, apply to become a Google Glass Explorer. He suggested to me that I apply when they were saying, you know, tell us what you want to do with this. And so I did say, I said, oh, you know, I want to stream live painting from, a, you know, first person while I'm doing that. And then like musical performances from stage and like project them onto the, you know, behind me and let people see in the audience, see themselves. And they were like, oh, cool, sure. And then I realized that what I had, you know, this program started right when Edward Snowden came out with his revelations and uh, suddenly it was like the party just went like, you know, like all of the air was sucked out of the excitement of this thing. And I began wondering, the principal thrust of that project was, for me, how do we appropriate military technologies, and in particular, like surveillance technologies, but it's equally true of psyops and, and information warfare, because the two are like indistinguishable from each other at this point in certain regards. Yeah, it is. There's like a word I want. So like, oh, a, yeah, what there, I want to, what I want to know is like your, sorry, your, your broader um, thinking around this and like other ways that you kind of wove uh, a philosophy in, into this project that is like uh, appropriating a weapon and turning it into a creative instrument. Yeah. Well, that the intention of the project is that, you know, for a moment you might think it's real, but everything about it is screaming that we are we are fake. We're not a real thing. We, you know, from the fact that we're not talking about, you know, the the real sort of hot button issues. You know, we don't we don't talk about abortion. We don't talk directly about Donald Trump. We don't talk about, uh, you know, anything that is in the news explicitly. It's all through metaphor, to, you know, the fictional characters, the the produced content, the sort of larger than life stories. So we wanted to make something that was exactly like a fake news event. That was exactly like somebody wanted to wag the dog and pretend something was actually happening. But everywhere you looked, you could see that it was fake. And so the, the structure of a fake news event would sort of pop out against the background because it's not part of this noise. And it's not, you know, you don't, normally if you make something about abortion, it's like you can't make performance art, meta art about abortion because immediately people start talking about it. You know, and it's it's really hard to make meta art about these issues because they're just specifically designed to inflame people. And because we've drawn these boundaries, you know, I think the the other thing that we really wanted to do is frame this conversation using these characters that, you know, the characters represent, like you were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, major forces in our world or different players in our world. And depending on who you are, you might think that one of the characters represents somebody or represents their opposite person. And I think that 
you know, whenever we watch a love story, for example, it gives us a, a space to think about our own love lives that we naturally project our own stories onto characters um, and experience ourselves through that. And it's my hope is that people will say like, oh, you're being such a Xander right now. Or like this, this is like that people will relate <laughs> their own lives and their own moments to this. And I think that part of the issue with disinformation is just that it's so big and so amorphous and so confusing that it's really even hard to think about. And and hopefully this this does some step in, in doing that. I guess there's, you know, the question with your film in certain ways is also the question raised by Jeff Vandermeer in Born when Born itself asks, like, am I a weapon? You know, am I a person or am I a weapon? Uh-huh. And this question, in, I think, with Definitely Real is like, you know, is the phone a tool of empowerment? Is it a creative instrument or is it a weapon? And obviously the answer is complicated. But, you know, I guess I just, um, as a sort of parting thoughts, I'm curious about how specifically you navigate that double-edged sword with, even like with your own film, which in certain respects is almost like when the drug counselor came to my high school and taught us all how to cook meth, you know, like showed us, this is how you do it. So don't do it. You know, like it was meant to be, it was a fun, it was like a school wide, we all gathered in the auditorium. Everyone was there and, you know, and they were like, all right, this is how you cook meth so that you're grossed out so that you realize what's, what's in it. And you I feel like you parents it. try that with beer all the time. And it's like, <laughs> it seems like it backfires. It's like that, that like, if you're going to have a sip, you got to drink the whole thing. And people are like, this is so gross. And then an hour later, they're like, it's so fun to be drunk. <laughs> I think it's, you know, maybe more charitably, cause I'm, I am talking about your film. I think it is like, this is evidence, at least in my case, that it's like what you were saying about just like a full disclosure world. It's like when you really understand how this stuff works and what that world feels like on the inside. And it's like, you know, I think you're more likely to encourage people to think smartly about these things than you are to encourage them to like emulate these characters and like lunge after this messed up reality, you know? Yeah. It's a common topic of discussion in our company. You know, we, so we have an ethical policy uh, that we wrote because of this, you know, we, we keep ourselves to it and there's things that we've wanted to do that we have not done because we don't think they're ethical and, you know, there's, so I think that's part of it, you know, and, and part of what is motivating me too, is I, I really think that the kind of project we're making is, it's not, you know, it's not going to be the last project like this. And if we hadn't have done this, someone would come along and make, you know, and that's usually a fairly weak argument, but like, you see it starting to happen, like fictional stories, lying to people over social media for art is, is definitely happening and happen more. And so I think putting our, you know, our foot in the ground and, and showing a way to do this ethically is really important. But I think there's a lot of big questions, you know, and, and personally, like, you know, I wonder if a world with social media is a better world than one without it, you know, and I think some of these tools for getting everybody, everybody's attention all of a sudden by just spending a little money and having a clever idea are really dangerous. And I think advertising, especially and the tools of advertising and this idea that we like getting in between our relationships and telling people that they need products in order to be happy, you know, are are things that like deeply disturb me. And so I think that's, if anything, what makes this feel like performance art to me is that there's aspects of what we're doing that are part of this world that I, I don't know if this is how the world should operate, you know, but we, I think we have some important things to say about it. And it does, it does seem to be a world that feels here to stay for now. It's hard to opt out of. You know, and I would, I would love to see more people trying. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah, I think you know, insofar as the pen is mightier than the sword, then you and I and everyone else crafting narratives right now is, you know, literally, you know, engaged in, you know, difficult answers to these questions and in some form or another of mimetic conflict. Yeah, and so it's like really you know, hope affirming for me uh, again to see you and your team's handling of this to, to make it clear that it's like, there's like, you know, certain people that you're like comfortable with them carrying a sword and certain people you're like, gosh, they really shouldn't have that. 
you know, yeah. like how can we safely take that away from that person? And I don't feel that way with, with this project. I think it's really cool. And I'm really glad to talk to you about this. Yeah. When I started telling people about this project three or four years ago, a common reaction was fear. You know, it was like, what you guys are doing is dangerous. And <laughs> I, I was, you know, I considered it deeply and like, but one of my responses was like, what, what is about to come is so terrifying uh, that we need to sound the alarm. And I think that that is a lot more obvious now than it was a few years ago. You know, though mm -hmm. what we're doing is a little bit of silly play. Um, and what we're up against is is really, really major and existential. Maybe the next project is a personal defense course or something, <laughs> you know, like, like, like using all of these tools, again, to immerse people in an actual learning experience where they are empowered to navigate this world more safely. We're doing yeah. that. Teamzander.com. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. You can learn, uh, yeah, learn to protect yourself on the internet. It's just a complete project then. Holy crap. <laughs> well, dude, Michael, it's, it's been such a pleasure to have you on Future Fossils. Do you have any parting thoughts for folks? Uh, no, this was so much fun. Uh, yeah, if people want to experience the project, go to teamzander.com. Uh, you know, hopefully uh, we can all help Xander get his sister back and get back at David. That bastard. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. Thanks again for listening. Future Fossils is an independent, ad-free, entirely listener-supported program. If you believe in the work that I'm doing and you want to help see it thrive into the unimaginable future, then you can avail yourself of all of the backstage goodies at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Or you can just leave a review at Apple Podcasts. That's more helpful than you know. Reach out to me personally at Michael Garfield on Twitter or Instagram and have a wonderful eon. <laughs>